From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome, everybody, to episode 140 of the Killing It podcast. I'm joined today by Dave and Ryan, and we are raring and ready to go. We're headed full steam towards the end of the year. It is. It's coming up. But while we think about that, guys, I'm going to kick us off with a fun question. Do you believe in luck? (laughs) I don't believe in uh, rabbit's foots and uh, uh, baseball caps and all that stuff. I believe there's good luck and bad luck, and everybody gets their share. And I think the most important element is attitude. So if you have attitude, you can make more good luck. And if you don't have a good attitude, you can make more bad luck. See, I agree with Carl on the first part, right? I don't believe that you can uh, hope for it and cause it from some mystical point of view. But I believe very strongly in probability. And I believe that frequency increases probability. So, A, I do buy a lottery ticket. Every, like every week, you know, you got to be in it to win it. And, and you never know, man, it's never going to happen, but it could, you never know. <laughs> and uh, it's also the same philosophy I use with sales reps. You know, it's like good luck and bad luck is not going to determine whether you meet your number, but having more opportunities in your pipeline gives you a better chance. Uh, well, good luck and never dialing a phone. will still get you <laughs> no sales. Because <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. so, I, I will say like, I do believe in luck only in that you, mu- but you have to do the work to be situationally ready for opportunities that randomly appear. And thus, things randomly do happen. Thus, you can be lucky in that a random event can happen at the right time. It's it's good Uh because you're prepared for it. Exactly. Uh, That is usually like the bad luck is when you aren't. So you have to be prepared for good things to happen. I would say luck is therefore uh, inversely correlated with watching television. (laughs) <laughs> I would I would agree with that because preparation requires activity. And see, that's why I say frequency, right? You know, the more often you try, the more likely it is that something might actually work out okay. And, and that comes with a healthy dose of Carl's advice on attitude because, you know, getting punched in the face over and over and over again by the universe <laughs> and coming back again with a smile, hey, that's that's an attitude. Ending, ending <laughs> an opener with punched in the face always seems like a good place. <laughs> because... Are you still relying on a frustrating patchwork of legacy solutions? Modernize your cybersecurity and data protection with the Cronus CyberProtect Cloud. It's a single solution that combines backup, anti-malware, and endpoint protection management. As an MSP, you can easily improve client security posture, eliminate complexity, and generate more recurring revenue. Learn more about a Cronus CyberProtect Cloud at acronus.com. Thank you for that. And our first story today is uh, is uh, from Apple, and uh, it's so interesting. So in case people missed the news, uh, one of the things that's happened is that uh, there's kind of this legal fight as Apple is going after the organization, the NSO group, that has basically cracked into their phones and allowed governments to serve warrants and so forth uh, and get data off of the encrypted phones. And this is really, ultimately, this is a battle between whether or not the government gets to determine 
the lines around privacy or whether Apple and other large corporations can draw those lines. And Apple has been adamant that, you know, when they promised security, they, they, they meant it. And by God, no government can make them do otherwise. And so, uh, and in particular, this incident is in uh, Israel, has hired this organization several times to crack into phones. And, uh, you know, it's, I like this story because it's complicated. <laughs> it's not simple and easy. You can't say, well, I like privacy. Um, I do like privacy, but I also think that ultimately, if you, if you operate within the confines of a certain government, you follow their rules and regulations. Uh, and I have been in the industry of serving up data to the public and selling it to clients and needing to both keep their information private and respond to uh, court documents that require me to turn over the data. So at some point, you have to decide whether a, a individual organization can be so large that they can say, I don't have to follow the laws of the countries I operate well, in. So I want to push back a little bit on that, Carl, because to a certain degree, like, first off, they're doing it in court. So they're actually going through the legal process of the country that they're, they're that they're that they're operating in in order to do it. And there's a space where the government, of course, any government in any locale gets to dictate the rules of engagement. But particularly in a country like I don't know the U.S., who doesn't have a privacy law? Uh, you know, if you if you don't have have that, then the then there is a space for companies to declare this is the way that we're operating, right? And we're going to defend our turf on this and we've got our contract agreements that say you will operate this way and a group like nso has to i don't know sign a developer engagement or has to engage like they they have contractual relationships too and so that's the space where the government sets the bigger guidelines and then the companies fight it out to the death in, in the courts you know courts and in in that space in between if the government wants to step in and say, oh, yeah, governments get access to all your data, uh, I think the people might have something to say with that in a democracy. That if they haven't come out and said what they're going to protect, I'm totally cool with them going, going at it on this. I'm fascinated by the story and I'm pulling for Apple, right, because I'm on, the, I'm on a pro-privacy kind of side. But I like that this is all happening. Well, and, and I will take it to another layer of complexity because the way that they are accessing, whether or not it's authorized by a secret court somewhere that doesn't actually have to tell you about the results of the, the judgments and the rulings that they make, the way they are accessing your camera and your microphone on your device, it begins with a sideways access into a technology for rendering photographs, and it allows them to turn off the logging function of your device and then install software and monitor your microphone and then exit and then turn back on the logging. Now, uh, what that says to me is you didn't intend for that to be done above the board. You went way far out of your way technologically to sneak around the system. And that's the opposite of a privacy definition. But I hark back to, I don't know, what was it, three weeks ago, guys, that we talked about the question of, are these tech giants now large enough that they ought to be treated like and regulated as nation states? I think that this is the entity that will prove that argument, because I agree with the idea that a contract is a contract. And once you define the terms, people should not be sneaking in around. Now, I will also admit 
I'm a grown up and I operate in the cybersecurity industry and I understand that technology companies do not operate with impunity outside of government structures. And there are backdoors built into every device that you have ever been in proximity of. We know that and we operate around it anyway. I'm just thinking once those those protocols are established, you got to stick with them and you can't be turning off the logging well, on my device. Thing is that when you bring up the question of nation states uh, that we talked about before, we you also have WhatsApp and you know what's going on in England, and so at some point, do we have a a, a G whatever fifty five which has a bunch of countries, and then Apple and Microsoft and uh, Meta all sit down together and have equal voices at the table? I would think that's a viable alternative because as a, you know, it's, we all belong to community organizations in the industry and there are vendors who attend and there are solution providers who attend. And then there are the weird third states that are out there as advisors and analysts and researchers in the industry. And we've all had to learn that we are equal players, even though we don't fit traditional roles. Well, I'm thinking that's a structure for the future in the technology industry. All 55 of those nations or whatever are going to be equally dependent on one or two device manufacturers and therefore their interests, I think, affect it. Well, and to a certain degree, the answer is we should have that actually at some level. If there are, because we've got uh, we need to have more co coordination between countries to handle some of these right. because you've got because we want to make sure that the na that these nation state style companies are managing data consistently across. You don't want to move data to a country that'll allow them to abuse it or or I don't know tax law that seemed like one that needed to have right. you know some coordination across boundaries. And if those co you know, those companies are big enough and operative, what they, they probably ought to have some kind of it, opportunity and ability to interact with that. And by the way, you know, when we when we look at what the State Department is doing, for example, with their Bureau of Cyber within the State Department, they're going to need to have involvement from the companies and they're going to have to do it across borders, too. So it should be an and like this is another thing. I don't think they sit at the U.N., for example, like but there's probably another space no, for them a, to, to, to communicate. Yeah, a, a treaty negotiation because you have the UK, no longer part of the EU, and then you have the US and China, Russia, right? Da, 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 da. I mean, I, I'd give Google more of a vote than, you know, Costa Rica, <laughs> right, uh, at that table. Um, but, you know, legitimately, it is in these large companies' best interest to have the laws across countries be as consistent as possible so they don't have to run a different system in the EU than they do in uh, parts of Eastern Europe that are not part of the EU, right? Yeah. Well, that I think that's absolutely true. And the the natural alignment of interest that you're witnessing here among Facebook and Apple and Google and others, uh, in this day and age, those folks don't agree on anything. But they are all filing briefs to support each other in this one. Uh, I think that might be an indication that this is a time where this issue rises above what traditional boundaries and nation state borders have been and we start to actually coordinate the question i i, I don't buy 
turning off logging on people's devices as a as an appropriate use of it. I mean, I get what the national interest is and why you want to listen to people's devices, but that doesn't mean that it's okay. <laughs> well, that's the, that's ultimately well, the trick. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see if we have a, a G whatever summit uh, in 2022 that in specifically includes these monster intergalactic corporations because you know alibaba would be on the list and a, and a handful of others that are outside the u.s well it's a, it's a it's a fascinating thought i this this could be a good story i'm looking forward to tracking it and uh, you know i know i've got my i'm rooting for somebody but i'm going to pivot <laughs> us and i'm going to talk about another interesting uh battle that, that goes into incredibly dark spaces we've talked about this a little bit before but the might mcdonald's ice cream machine is uh, is going through a fascinating set of uh, of stories, and we're linking to a Wired piece that kind of updates on on where we're at because the the saga gets gets continued because there's a new group of internal emails that have been released that actually show that there are some distinct market manipulation going on by the by the various players that in fact that the maker of the ice cream machine. Uh, was in fact trying to acquire copies of the the diagnostic tools by the smaller company, and perhaps McDonald's themselves is getting involved with all of this. It's it's a fascinating right to repair story, uh, guys. I, I know I shared it, Ryan. You had some some fun thoughts on this one. Well, see, this is the thing, right? You touched on the right to repair, and right about exactly the same time that we heard last week, the Apple folks go, okay we'll let you repair your device and not void the warranty. And you go, yay, it's getting better. Then you realize there are many dark forces in the industry that do not want you to touch their own devices. Now, again, we all look at this from not just a technological point of view, but also from an industry point of view. I am the very first person in this industry to say, please do not just sell the device. Please attach a service contract to that. But only if that's a bona fide, legitimate repair requirement, and it's not you intentionally programming vulnerabilities into the machine to force your customers to bring you in and pay you for that service you are providing. As an MSP, if you sell a server and a storage device and a network uh, access point and it requires a maintenance contract, cool. Like You should sell that and get paid for upselling your quality services on top of it. But if you're sneaking in in the night and busting their machines so that they call you the next day, that's that's just not okay. <laughs> my, my favorite piece of this story is that the manufacturer was trying to develop a, a competing product that basically uh, also allowed the same kind of analysis for uh, speeding up repairs. But they were going to do it over the Internet. So now you have an, an Internet of ice cream things, which is kind of cool. Um but for, for some reason, they haven't figured out how to do that. And all of the motivation on the side of the manufacturer and on McDonald's seems to be just let 10% of the machines be broken at all times. And that's the preferred environment. And I haven't figured that out. Like, why is McDonald's interested in supporting them, except for the fact that they might own some piece of that corporation? Well, it's that, and that's the bit where, like, you have to under, I quip all the time. You have to understand the financial motivations of everybody involved in relationships to understand how they are making money. And there's a licensing bit to this. Now, I get, like, there's, there's a problem in the technology and that 
this is difficult, right? You've got to keep the the, the ice cream at a certain temperature, and it, and it has to be done in a, in a way that maintenance can be done on a regular basis, and you have to clean it. And so, like, there is a certain degree of complexity to this device. However, it feels like it shouldn't be quite as complicated as it is. And <laughs> when you've got 20 to 40% downtime in New York City over the past week, as tracked by the best website name ever, Mick Broken, like, you, you know, when you are actually tracking this level of downside, there has to be an element of you are clearly losing money on the product side. But if you're not motivated to fix that, that tells me that you're making money on the repair side. Like you have, there has to be a way people are making money on this. And that's what becomes so puzzling. And what we don't know is they may also just be making money on the sale and the whatever maintenance contract and not losing money on the repair side, basically not doing much repairs. <laughs> and well, this is, this is the thing as a left-handed person in the world, I am aware of how certain conditions defy probability, right? Like there's a genetic reality that says if you are just looking at, you know, Darwin and survivability rates in terms of the population percentage that is left-handed, over time, either that that percentage would trend up or it would trend down, but it stays literally for the last couple of thousand years all right, about 10% of the population is still left-handed. The best that any of the researchers can predict on that to explain it is it's because certain parts of the population prefer to be left-handed because there's some sort of benefit, either selection or economic, that, that's attached to being left-handed. Okay, that's deep. The, the answer is it's only because there's an artificial constraint. If there's always 10% of the machines in the McDonald's world that are broken, that's on purpose. Somebody is engineering the machines to break down at a certain amount to justify the contracts for repair, and that's evil, and you got to knock that off. Now, the fact that McDonald's is involved, I don't think they actually have to formally own a piece of that company to justify their behavior. All it takes is somebody who's got say-so in the organization who gets, I don't know, invited to go play golf a little bit more frequently or, hey, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. The fact that there's a paper trail on this one and that there's actual emails in Discovery, you're like, Come on, guys, the Internet of Ice Cream things should have happy music and children running around. That should be a happy place. It shouldn't be a place where people are getting sued for $100 million. I mean, look, I, I would encourage you, particularly anybody who's in the delivery of IT services, you should absolutely be following this story because it is very much an example of the dynamics between a vendor and how they manage the repair of the devices, the brand above it that, that is controlling and individual franchisees, small businesses and the impact of that. There is so much to learn here. And oftentimes when you remove it from your own industry and see it completely separated, you can be much more objective and understand all of the dynamics and do the case study analysis. And that's why I'm so fascinated by this, by watching this story. Uh, besides the fact that one of my early jobs was working at a McDonald's uh, and I worked with the shake <laughs> machine. But this is, you know, there, there's, but there's that bit that I cannot like let go of where it's just like, oh, this is so the dynamics of all that financial motivation exposed completely. Oh, and by the and, way, be careful what you put in an email. 
<laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Again, why do the, why does anybody get caught doing stupid stuff? Well, well, because they document it. Um, but you know, if you've read the Ray Kroc story and the history of McDonald's, they control everything. Like literally everything. They own the properties that the McDonald's restaurants are on, and they rent them to their franchisees. <laughs> and the rent varies depending on sales. It's like it, they literally control everything. So. It is inconceivable that they are not involved from A to Z with the details of this machine, as bizarre as that seems. You know, part of me always wants to, as a knee-jerk, reject uh, conspiracy theories, but just because you don't believe in them doesn't mean they're not true. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> and, and, you know, none, none of this would matter at all if we all didn't, despite ourselves and what we know about health and nutrition— really enjoy a mcdonald's shake <laughs> that's that that's the sort of upside down part of this whole thing is it, it only matters because we care so much about it but i'm with you dave i think it actually matters because of the industry dynamics and the uh, the service attach rates and uh, their industry associates with ours in a very precise fashion in terms of business models and margin structures we all don't think that we do the same things as fast food retail yes we do, uh, yes, we do. <laughs> It's just, it's just, it's just way more complicated content than a strawberry shake and some French fries to. I have to say, I'm not sure it's as, it's any more complicated than this story. <laughs> Fair enough. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Topic number three, guys. This one is awesome. You guys know that I have an unfortunate tendency to compare everything back to a movie quote, but this one's actually real because our friends at NASA are going to Armageddon an asteroid. They, uh, dun, dun, dun. This is cool because, A, it has some phenomenal physics and technology built into it, but also they're going to capture real-time video of what might turn out to be the most epic explosion in the history of the universe. Now, what they're doing, right, for those of you that are not following this story, and we will link to it in the show notes so that you can catch up, NASA has launched a rocket that will deliver a payload that will impact an asteroid on the other side of the universe, kind of explode it, but just for the purpose of being able to track the impact on the orbit and therefore the trajectory of that satellite. Now, all that sounds super cool, but what happens is in the real world, things don't happen the way they do in Hollywood. Um, a, they've been working on this for a couple of years. B, they launched it today, literally, and it's not going to impact the asteroid until sometime at the end of next September or October. And then we're not going to really be able to measure the impact until another mission goes up three years later. So Hollywood overpromises a little bit, but uh, as techies, what say you about this story and blowing I up I want to be in the meeting where somebody pitched this like oh, yeah. like, like seriously like <laughs> did did they come in and go hey you know that movie armageddon like we should try that like i almost i really want to know how the pitch went to propose this idea 
because I mean, and I get it when you break it all down. Like there is some real, you know, there is some potential risk to this. There is some, there is real science to understanding. Like, can we make changes to this if we ever needed to? Uh, there might be circumstances where we need to in smaller ways too, right? Do we want to do it in space with some of the the equipment that we've got up there? There's lots of reasons to do this, but I tell you, I really want to be in the pitch session. <laughs> well, and this is actually an issue that has been discussed for over 60 years. And, uh, you know, the various magazines uh, and so forth, uh, Science Magazine, even National Geographic have covered this story many, many times with, you know, they, they used to actually have plans of like, okay, we should just send up a nuclear device, explode it, you know, on one side of the asteroid and see how far off it moves it. And then other people are like, unless it starts creating oxygen and burns the entire galaxy, in which case maybe we shouldn't. <laughs> uh, but but it's, it's always interesting See. as a space nerd to, to watch these things and say, okay, what constitutes success? If we move an asteroid 1% from its current orbit, uh, we're going to declare that a success. It's like, okay, that's a nice low bar. I want to be one success right and be victorious. <laughs> <laughs> well, and to those who say, why are we spending $100 million? There are roughly 27,000 near-Earth orbit asteroids that might at any minute, you know, decide to smash into the Earth. The, so, and, and actually, the really scary part is that it's not those we have to worry about. It's the one coming into our galaxy that we're not foreseeing and we can't, we haven't already, you know, pathed it out where it's going. Um, but for all the fear of that, uh, as far as we know, one of those has hit uh, the Earth since life started, and that's the one that destroyed the dinosaurs. So, you know, it's not a frequent thing that we really have to worry about. There, you know, and it, just to make it practical again for someone, you, you really should study the way NASA and space agencies do planning and, and disaster planning and contingency planning. Like if you want to get into actual project management at a really incredibly sophisticated level, they are case studies to, to spend time thinking. Oh about. yeah. Because well, I mean, they, they, they deal with anytime you're dealing with the life and death kind of stuff, there's a whole other level of planning and it is worth, even if you don't do it, there's worth spending some brain cycles and understanding the way that works because it will make you better. Well, and they have many missions that are literally three years, 12 years, right? That they're, it's like, okay, what we're going to do now, the, the people who start this project will be retired when it's finished. You know, it's that kind of thing. They, they really have seriously long-term uh, project management. And in fact, they know all the technology will be different at the end of the project than it is at the beginning. Uh, it's pretty cool. I mean, it's, they, they really do some fun stuff. And I, to be honest, I'm glad that NASA found something to do besides go to the moon, which, you know, was awesome and amazing in 1969. Um, but now it's sort of like, but we also can do all these other things. And we have a lot of cool stuff going on right now. All right. Is that it? Are we done with that subject? I think we're done. <laughs> if, if we are done with that subject, then by all means, we are done with episode 140 of the Killing It, Killing it. podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. 
Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.